Okay, well, here we are back for another episode. Uh, today's episode is David Lynch. Um, actually, uh, I was thinking, Lamb, before we get started, maybe it would be cool, since we do these only once a month now, to maybe just do a little brief catch-up with the audience at the beginning. Uh, if you're cool with that, that is. Oh, yeah, I'm totally okay with that. Um, yeah, because I kind of miss some of our discussions anyway, and it's kind of odd to jump right into the middle of a subject matter that both of us have kind of delved into for the last month, you know what I mean? Exactly. Uh, so for those of you who only want to hear the David Lynch part, you can fast forward through this part, but uh, for everybody else, this is for you and for us. <laughs> um, so for me in the last month, there's been a lot of creative changes, but before I go into my stuff, I wanted to ask you about What's new with you? What's what's going on creatively with you, man? Um, I just got a, a rather large promotion at work. Um, so I kind of, you know what's funny is uh, over the last couple of weeks, I have no idea what the impulse was, um, but I've been diving back into Star Trek again. Um, and I think my creative center is kind of focusing a little bit more on the scientific side. Um, you know, I've, I've always been one of those spacefaring kids in my head. So for me, um, I've been diving back into a lot of the sci-fi stuff, like, um, you know, the Bradbury stuff, um, your Asimov book that I finally am starting to read now. Good. Uh, yeah, I know. It took long enough. It's brilliant. Um, yeah, it's amazing so far. Um, and I've, I'm only like 10 pages deep, and it's already just weirdly captivating. Um, and then I'm doing a full-on dive back into Star Trek again. So that's been interesting. The First of all, for people who don't know, the book that Lamb is borrowing is called uh, Robots and Murder. It's a it's an aftermarket collaboration or a collection of three of Asimov's books. Uh, I'm probably going to forget one of them, but it's Naked Sun. Mm -hmm. uh, do you remember Robots of Dawn? I don't. I don't have it in front of me either. So that we're we're sourcing like we always do, which is totally incomplete. <laughs> I'm going to have to Google that right now while we're sitting here because that that one we can't leave hanging. But uh, basically, when I read the book, which was probably like five years ago, it blew my mind. So I thought that Lamb would appreciate it. And what did I give that to you, like a year ago? <laughs> yeah, just about. You know, what's, what's funny is I never really – I like Asimov, don't get me wrong, but I read most of Asimov when I was much, much younger, um, probably in my late teens and early 20s. I haven't touched an Asimov book in over a decade, and I forget how good of a writer he is. <laughs> oh, he's brilliant. Uh, it's Caves of Steel, Naked uh, Sun, yeah, and Robots right. of Dawn. So Caves yeah. of Steel is the one you're reading now. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, it's it, The reason I shared it with them, it's particularly, I believe, pertinent to now because a lot of the things that happen in there are, are things that are hinted at as what's going on in society now in the sense that um, in Robots of Dawn, I believe it's uh, the third one, there's talk about these people that they don't walk anymore and all they do is stare at the screen that's like right in front of them. And when yeah. they... Uh, sorry, not screen in front of them. I'm confusing that with Wally. Um, they they have holograms and they talk to each other in holograms. And like when they go on a walk with somebody, they go on a walk with them as a hologram. So they're never in physical contact with other human beings. Um, there's there's a whole bunch of other stuff. I don't want to go too much into the books, but if you like science fiction or maybe even if you don't, um, these are great books and they're actually written in the format of detective novels. There's there's a murder in each of the stories and the main character is a detective um but it's told in the future 
I wonder what Asimov would have thought of a story like Wally, because you know, despite the fact that it's a Pixar cartoon, and I mean, I'm, I'm not disparaging on Pixar cartoons at all, but they're obviously made for kids. Um, but the social commentary in them is pretty, pretty pronounced. So I wonder what a guy like Asimov would have thought of watching a children's story as as socially complex as Wally. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I think part of me wants to think that he would have loved it because of that, but then there's also a part of me that thinks that that analytical side of his brain couldn't stop dissecting it. Sure, sure. I mean, the man well, I mean, was a I guess, genius. I guess it's where it comes. It, it comes down to for for guys like you and I, right? Is a movie or a story captivating enough for us to suspend disbelief? Totally. And yeah. I think that at one point, uh, Osimov might be somebody we might, we might have to do. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. When it comes to creativity, it's hard to beat Isaac Osimov in the sense that the man wrote so many books that there's actually no verifiable list of how many books he's written. Which is is mind-boggling. If you if if you don't believe me, just go to Wikipedia, type in Isaac Asimov, and go down to bibliography, and just look at the A's. There's probably <laughs> about forty books just in the letter A. Uh, he he released I think it was like twenty to thirty books a year sometimes, science-based, all kinds of different things on Shakespeare, everything. It's funny um, looking back on that. I can't despite the fact that he was as prolific as he was as a writer, I can't recall reading a single book or short story of his that I didn't like. Oh, yeah. And it, I think it's a, he was one of those people that just lived and breathed the work in the sense that um, um, for some people that the work is something that's outside of what they do. But like mm -hmm. everything he did was engrossed in it. Like I don't think the man watched television. Yeah. Um, but anyways, he also used to do the, um, he's the guy that wrote all of the, for the San Jose Mercury News, you know, all the little trivia questions. Mm -hmm. If you, I don't know if they still use some of them, but for a long time they were Isaac Asimov's. He wrote those. Oh man, I promise there's someone out there who's archived those. We got to find that. I, I, they may still be using them in the paper today, but uh, I don't think so. Cause a lot of them are like more modern questions. And since he's dead, uh, that would be difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but given Asimov's uh, you know ability to prolifically write, I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt that they have enough for like the next two decades. Right. So um, another question about your scientific, I mean about your um, science fiction delving currently, does that affect your writing and maybe even your photography? Um, yeah, I mean it, it's affected me quite a bit. Um, I think the combination of Asimov um, and Lynch together over the last month has kind of unhinged my imagination quite a bit. Um, so I'm diving back into a lot of these old stories that I'd written um, and kind of reworking them to my modern sensibilities, which has been an interesting experiment. Uh, one story in particular about um, basically there's this this princess that's being led across a desert by uh, her guardian and every single morning she wakes up and completely forgets. So she basically has a, a amnesia um, and she forgets where she is or why she's there and what's going on. And so every single morning he has to convince her of who she is and it's kind of like a space version of Groundhog's Day. It's kind of interesting. So yeah, it's 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 dramatically affected uh, my writing and beyond just my writing, my my narrative sensibilities as well. Now, does that in some way does that aesthetic? Because um, I feel like science fiction brings an aesthetic with it. Does that affect like uh, your photography at all? Like, do you, do you see images differently? 
Yeah, um, I, I just did uh, some promotional videos for uh, Crystal's company, um, and there's definitely more of a sci-fi edge to them than anything that I traditionally do. Uh, you know, we're using more halogen lights and more interesting uh, camera angles and cuts and stuff. And even though the the the, the images in the video aren't inherently science science fiction, they have a very weird sci-fi feel to them, which is interesting as well. Yeah, that's I think what I've always found fascinating about the arts in general is there's always some kind of underlying a narrative going on in the mind of the creator that maybe that the audience is unaware of. Um, I'm sure we're going to dive into this even deeper when we talk about Lynch, because that's pretty <laughs> much, I just pretty much defined everything that he does. Um, but I love that idea that, you know, like I could look at these pictures and I might not see that. But then when you tell me that now, all of a sudden I'm seeing them through a different lens. And, I think I was reading something about uh, I think it was Lynch and he was talking about how he hates to explain films. But I feel like also sometimes by giving those backstories to things, you can enhance things for people. Sure. Um, but I, I think I remember um, reading that same interview and it specifically was about Eraserhead um, and how even to this day he ha he's he's really irky about um, giving his explanation as to what Eraserhead was ultimately about. Um but yeah, I, I think it can enhance it. But I also think there are certain um, films, like I think, um, you know, some Aronofsky stuff as well as some Lynch stuff. Some of the weirder projects that they've done, I I like the fact, as frustrating as it is as a moviegoer, I like the fact that they haven't explained it. Um, but there are definitely some stories that greatly benefit from explanation. Well, yeah, even like not even sometimes explanation too. You know, like for example, if I'm if I'm watching uh, Interstellar, and I find out that. Uh, that the writer was reading, we'll say, the Maltese Falcon at the time. That yeah, might yeah. that not might not have purposely influenced anything in there, but it may enhance my viewing in some way. To the you know, like I'm going to watch the movie again now. This time I'm going to watch it through the lens of knowing that he was reading the Maltese Falcon when he wrote this script, and that that can enhance things for me in a way. And I feel like that's to go into a little bit of what I've been doing recently. Um, that's kind of what I'm delving into right now is kind of sharing sharing more what I'm doing on, on the back end of things. Um, as you know, I stopped doing daily vlogs. Um, I did not stop doing videos. I'm just, I, I reached the point where I needed more production time to achieve the things that I wanted to. And 24 mm -hmm. hours was just not cutting it. Um, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But in the because I got used to having that time allotted every day to that one specific task, um, which was great. I mean, I was doing something creatively every day, but other creative things in my life suffered because of that. For instance, my novel or just my writing in general. But I got used to that a lot of time. So I've been using that same allotted time every day in creative avenues, but just in many, many more ways. And I've given up on this idea of like this... Um, I used to have this idea that there was a universal uh, usage for social media and websites and things like that. When you do this type of thing, you do it on this website and this website, you know, like trying to bring all that into one package. And I've just realized that it's way more fun to just be scattered. And sure. today I feel like putting this one on Twitter and tomorrow <laughs> I feel like putting this one on Facebook. And then the day after that, I feel like putting it on everywhere. I'm just spreading out what I'm doing. Like I've been playing a lot with Pinterest. Just um, I realized, you know, like uh, I talked a little bit about this in the last video that I did 
on my channel but basically when you're when you're finding these images and things um visual obviously because pinterest is a visual medium you you normally people will save these things either on their computer or they'll bookmark them or they'll put them in evernote or OneNote, or even um apple notes or or take a screenshot and save it in their photos and i realized that what you're doing there is you're, you're finding these things that are great that are inspiring you um, you're kind of putting them in disparate places where maybe you have to go dig them up later to look at them. Um, but you're hoarding them. You're hoarding them away from the world. And I realized that Pinterest does the same thing that all these other things will do. Save these images for me. But it puts it forward in a way that other people can look at them and maybe be inspired by them too. Um, so uh, because of that, I'm in love with Pinterest right now. And well, let's get into the let's get into the nitty gritty a little bit, though. I mean, a uh, couple of weeks ago, when you were talking about um, uh, backing out of the the daily vlog thing and adding a lot more creative projects into your life, what what projects are you working on right now? Uh, the novel is is number one. Uh, I'm also I've been this is this sounds strange maybe to some people, but um, a big creative project for for me right now is my notebook. Um, hmm. Just working on, uh, I'm making it visually appealing, so I'm learning lettering, and I'm uh, doing sketches within there, and it's it's not something that necessarily is um, what you would normally make as a product to share with the world, but it's something mm -hmm. that it by doing that it brings more creativity out of me. So it's like reinvesting your money, you know, um, when you get your money, your profits from your business, putting it back into the business. So working on the journal is in a way is that for me. And it, it blossoms other ideas. I, I got a video idea out of just what I sketched, or a little uh, word sketch that I did during um, the time that I was listening to jazz on my birthday. Um, so it brings things out. I end up with sketches. It gives me things to share on Instagram, which is fo um, photos of the sketches that I'm doing. I've also been playing a lot with the Instagram stories thing. Um, it's just kind of it's a fun thing. People actually watch these things, which is cool. Um, and just trying to share a little bit more of what's going on behind the scenes. You know, I'm reading this book right now. Boom. Put a picture up of the book cover for the Instagram story. Um, just kind of stuff like that. Like I'm, I'm just trying to have fun and uh, really focus on that um, passion that, and that that's found in quiet. You know, what's tough about that is, you know, for, for people like you and I, um, we and I, I kind of had a rediscovery about this recently too. Is that we 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 kind of start using these these medias like social media, for example, um, as as business tools or marketing outlets or any number of serious potential things that they are. But we forget to do the most important thing with them, which is to have fun. <laughs> yeah, you know what I, th I was thinking about um, yesterday is I remember, and I'm sure the viewers out there who are not uh, friends of ours can relate to this as a phase perhaps that they went through with um, Instagram as well. There was a period of time where um, Instagram was everything, especially for um, our group of friends. And it was, mm -hmm. it, it, it almost got to a point where it was an art. Um, take this photo because we're here doing this. Okay. You stand mm -hmm. there. You do. And we, we were setting up essentially like these little mini photo shoots and it was, it was fun then. It was fun to watch, see, see what people were putting up. Remember, we did that Stoke Sunday thing where you, Brandon, <laughs> and I drove around taking pictures, um, cheesy pictures of thumbs ups and random places, um, just kind of stuff like that. And I think that that's kind of what I've been trying to rediscover is 
how to use these things not only as fun or or business like you said but to use them as creative mediums sure um how to be creative with them and how to inspire other people to be creative with them because i feel like when i start doing that then it enhances everything else that I'm doing. You know, if you watch my vlogs and you pick me up on one of my social medias, it's going to enhance the vlog. Uh, sorry, I can't use the term vlog anymore. It's going to enhance the video experience for you. Um, if you read my uh, blogs, I've been blogging more, just even doing little micro blogs. Um, if you listen to this podcast, any place you pick me up, it's just going to enhance the experience. You're going to find out, you know, a week ago, like Trista did, that I was watching a video on, on David Lynch and she guessed correctly that David Lynch was the subject of today's podcast. Very so, nice. So I, I feel like that that's where I am right now and I'm I just I'm enjoying the hell out of it. Yeah, it's funny how that works. Um especially with my Instagram. Now I'm starting to, to getting back into using filters and you know, there was a period of time in which I was I was kind of anti editing uh when it came to my photos. Um or at least not not anti editing, but anti over editing. But now, and maybe it's because of, of the Lynch stuff that I've watched recently or, or because I'm diving back into Asimov, I just don't care anymore. Um, I want to get as crazy as physically possible with some of these pictures just to see how far I can push a visual image. Um, and I think that there's a certain sense of fun in that that throws me back into the sandbox as a photographer and allows me to just play with the tools in a way that I haven't in a really, really long time because my mentality has been... You know, especially lately, my mentality has been how do I use this for business or how do I get you know, a marketing angle out of this or how do I use this to, to monetize? You know, I'm, I'm kind of just letting go of that for a while and trying to figure out why I liked doing these things in the first place. And I feel like it, it, it's going to be better for everything in the long run anyways. If you're having fun, right, people are going to jump in because it's fun and they want to follow something that's fun. Sure. You know, we don't all, we don't want to be marketed to. I mean, the best marketing in the world makes you feel like you're not being marketed Sure. It, it makes you feel like you're part of an experience. Uh, at the very at the very least, it makes you feel entertained. You know, like some of the marketing campaigns that I've loved over the last two decades have been campaigns that feel very much like the, the creators felt an inherent responsibility to entertain me in some way, whether it's serious or, or comedic. Um, there's definitely a sense of care that's 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 placed on those things that makes me care more about it. Right. Like I was just watching this thing yesterday. Uh, <laughs> YouTube is slowly rolling out um, what's called community pages. And at first I didn't really understand what it was, but then I realized it's actually quite brilliant. Um, essentially, without going too deep into this, because we don't really do this stuff anymore, but it does fit into creativity. It, you have subscribers on YouTube. You're, you're dropping videos to them. But sometimes you want to share things that aren't videos. I mean, you don't want to share a photo. Do, you know, the kind of stuff that I'm talking about, that we're talking about right now. Well, the community page is going to allow people to do that. And I was mm -hmm. watching a video of a guy talking about this, and he said, um, this was way before my time with at least putting stuff on YouTube, but there was a period of time where YouTube had something called Lean Back, and it was essentially, it would just play things, and you couldn't interact with the videos, it would just play the videos that I, I believe that you were subscribed to. And uh, because they thought that that's what people wanted, people wanted to be immersed in something um, and that that's what advertisers would want. And then they found out that all of their views went down from that because what people really wanted to do was watch the video and get involved in the comments and to become part of the experience. Sure. And I, I think that that's, even for businesses, that's, that's an important thing to do is to look at where the creative impulse is, where the fun is, where 
where all of the things are that aren't the business part of it because that leads to business. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think it, it, all of the stuff that we're talking about now, now kind of leads pretty pretty well into our discussion about Lynch because that's the one thing that that you that's always been true in Lynch's entire filmography is that he's just kind of done whatever he wanted to do, um, and I think that there's 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 something to be said for that for for creators um, like you and I for example where I think we get into the trap of trying to get views or trying to, to, to produce monetization or revenue somehow. And so because of that, we lose, we lose the, the core essence of what, what it is that we're doing, which is we're, we're inherently creating. And once we start losing, losing sight of the fact that, that, you know, the creation should be for the sake of itself, then we start to, to get things like writer's block and we, we find ourselves stuck in holes um, creatively where we have a hard time fighting our way out of it because our brains are just in the wrong place. Yeah, you're, I mean, like it's a perfect segue in the sense that, and we did not plan this. Um, <laughs> Lynch talks about. I, I've been reading his book. I I wouldn't. I wanted to finish it before today, but it's actually I felt the need to slow down because um, there was a lot in the book, and it's a very short book. It's called uh, Catching the Big Fish. Mm-hmm. Um, but in there, he talks about the idea of he goes into a movie, and this is something we touched on a little bit with. Um, the Murakami thing, the idea of not knowing where you're going. Uh, he goes in not knowing and he learns what the movie's about while he's making it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, that's, that is the creativity that we're talking about. This idea of like using a medium as an exploration of self. Uh, I mean, that's what, that's the difference between art and craft. Uh, sure. Craft mm-hmm. is making something. It could be the same exact thing, but our art is exploring it in a way that explores yourself and, exposes other people to your point of view and lynch is you're right he's the epitome of that he in every way uh and we both found out that when we were doing this that we've seen what i've seen every every one of his films except for one which was a straight story the disney movie he made and you saw all of them except for that one as well, or did you see that yeah, one? Yeah, I, I didn't even know it existed, strangely. <laughs> and oddly enough, it happened fairly recently. It happened within the last 20 years that he did a Disney film. Huh, strange. I, I want to know what happened in that discussion. How did they go, oh, this guy that did a movie about a severed ear and uh, Dennis Hopper yelling uh, <laughs> about how he wants to bleep Blue Velvet. uh we want you to come and make a movie for us. <laughs> well, I think it's I think it's one of those moments of just sometimes you have the the opportunity to work with a brilliant, almost generation defining director, um, and regardless of what he, you know, because and it doesn't seem that far stretched to me in the sense that I think Lynch, if given the, the parameters for an audience, he has such a vivid imagination that he can produce something that would. I mean, I don't, I don't know, obviously, because I haven't seen the, the the Disney project, so I don't know if it's any good or not. But um, I definitely don't see it being that far of a stretch for him in a weird kind of way. Well, Fantasia was a Disney movie, and that's about as lynching as you can get. Yeah, right? true. <laughs> like, what is this about? This is the oh, this film is basically the collective unconscious of what you're feeling when you hear this music. Sure. And that's that's. I- Go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say that's the focus of this book. He's, he talks about um, meditation and going into the un- uh, unconscious or the subconscious. Sure. And I feel like that is something that comes up a lot, too, this idea of meditation. Um, it, are you meditating? 
We were talking about this a little bit the other day. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm trying to. Um, the one thing that that I think is difficult in in this modern age is that I think I think in order to meditate properly, you have to have such a ruthless discipline um, because you know there's so many distractions, there's so many things you quote unquote have to do throughout the course of a day, um, and finding half an hour to, to to park yourself somewhere and 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 turn it all off is actually harder to do than it sounds, um, and I think. Although I've been doing it more and more, I think I still struggle with with forcing myself to do it. So yeah, I have been, but I I, I don't think it'll really take hold until I consistently do it um, and until I consistently carve out a certain amount of time um, in which I, I dedicate nothing but, you know, I, I, I dedicate it strictly to the meditation and nothing else. It's a strange thing. I, I'm, I'm going to remember the number wrong, but uh, he said that he has he does 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon every day and he's done it and hasn't missed a single one in like 40 years Jeez, see ruthless discipline it that's what it requires i i I think it's it's i don't even know that it's discipline i think that it's it's part of his identity sure he doesn't feel like david lynch if he doesn't do it Hmm. and i think that that that's one of the most interesting things about him is like this idea he's such a meditative um calm human being a and i imagine that because of that in some way he's fairly enlightened as a person uh yet his films are so i guess chaotic at times and um sometimes psychotic uh i I think that 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 disconnect would kind of blow people's minds yeah but i think in a certain kind of way because he's freed himself from so many shackles. I mean, I think that's part of the problem with living a continuous life without breaks for meditation, um, or at least uh, without severing the, the 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 cord to your current reality, is that you start to build in more and more assumptions, um, especially as you get older, um, because you need the world to have rules that you don't have to redefine constantly. And I think a guy like Lynch is free of that. Um, I think he's free of of the constraints of having to make assumptions about the world that he lives in. So he approaches everything without a preconceived notion about what it should be. It's it's the same thing as our, our Murakami discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at a lot of uh, his his, it doesn't even matter what era of work you look at from Lynch. I mean, um, there you know you have Eraserhead, for example, and and the Elephant Man kind of back to back, and they couldn't be more different. Um, when it comes to to their narrative um, storytelling or even their general style, but they're both absolutely brilliant. And if you didn't know, you wouldn't have guessed that they were made by the same guy. <laughs> it's a crazy thing. He says uh, exactly what Murakami said as well. Uh, everything starts with an image. Yeah. Uh, he says that the reason it's called catching the big fish is he says uh, you get one image. He says and you just you hold it, and then that brings in a fish. And then you hold that fish, and then that brings in a bigger fish and a bigger fish, and then eventually you have the whole thing, which is the project. And like for for Blue Velvet, it started with um, started with uh, I can't remember what the first image was, but then it was the song, the Bobby Vinton song called Blue Velvet, and then it was the ear in the field. And he says what he does is he takes these completely unconnected images and he puts them next to each other. And he tries to figure out how they work in context of each other. And then that's what his film becomes. And that's why sometimes even he doesn't know what certain parts of them mean. Like the blue box in Mulholland Drive. He says, I to this day still do not know what that box is. <laughs> and that's rare for a filmmaker. You're absolutely right. Like he is freed of that where he doesn't feel like he has to have that answer. Sure. 
I mean, in, in a lot of ways, he feels more like a documentarian than a filmmaker in the sense that it feels like David Lynch as a person um, is a person that is just hand-holding his imagination through its own wildings, you know, the, through through its own stream of consciousness. So he he just happens to be the passenger that knows most about the journey, but he's a passenger along with the rest of us as well. And that's what's really interesting about some of his work. And I feel like b- between Murakami and this one, it's a message to both you and I to just kind of ride the ship. And, sure. <laughs> and and you stop trying to define the ending before we get there and just ride it and see where it goes. And I th- if, if it's a message to us, that's a message to everyone else out there, too. Don't um, don't try to control your projects too much. Let them live, let them breathe and let them control themselves. Uh, it's hard to do. I suck at it. Yeah, and I, I think the meditation thing is definitely uh, something that helps me. Every time I do it, I feel I feel reinvigorated. You know, I feel like I, I I'm ready to take on whatever it is, um, and especially artistically. Um, I, I remember. That, let me find it. There's a quote that I have from him about meditation that I really like that I thought you would dig. Um, it's meditation is to dive all the way within, beyond thought, to the source of thought and pure consciousness. It enlarges the container every time you transcend. When you come out, you come out refreshed filled with energy and enthusiasm for life. And I think that there's such a palpable truth to that for me. Um, I'm excited about coming out of meditation. I'm excited about uh, about rejoining the world because I now feel like I have a different, a different scope to see it by. And I feel like every single time I do it, I, I get a little bit clearer of a picture of what it is that I'm trying to do, not just creatively, but just as a person, you know, what, what I'm trying to achieve in my lifetime um, before I, I, I shuffle off the mortal coil, you know. So it's really interesting to hear that from a guy like, like Lynch and to see how, you know, to, I didn't know that he hadn't missed a meditation session in 40 years, but in a lot of ways, looking back at his work, you can definitely see the, the, the effect that that, 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 or the freedom that that allows a person, you know, the ability to, to, to not live within a, a preconceived, world or or, or or a comfortable box in which you are creatively. I mean, there are plenty of great directors that we know that have produced fantastic movies, but they definitely live within a box. You know, if you look at a guy like J.J. Abrams or Zack Snyder, two of the bigger guys out right now, they definitely have a box of tricks that they live within. And as brilliant as some of their movies are, they're very predictably J.J. Abrams or, you know, Zack Snyder or, or David Fincher or whoever it is. And this is not to diminish the quality of their work. It's just to say that with a guy like Lynch, you could watch 10 Lynch movies in a row. And sure, some of them may have some similarities, um, but I think the only real similarity, uh, the only real cohesive line that you have between all of them is how inherently different they all really are. Yeah, I think that quote is actually from the book itself. And he goes into this whole idea of diving into this unconscious, like that uh, normal, because he's, he's a practitioner of transcendental meditation, which is um, revolves around... Uh, a mantra that's given to you by a guru. I don't know the mechanics of it. Um, and he goes in there, he says that there, there, there's a definite difference between that type of meditation and normal meditation, which is kind of what you and I are more familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says that, you know, like, it, it'll calm you and it brings you to a sense of awareness and and it, it's beneficial to you in every way. But the transcendental meditation, he says, dives you into that unconscious in a completely different way. It, it doesn't take you to the border. It throws you over the line. And he says, and what's on the other side of that line, it's, it's not hokey and it's not goofy like people think when they talk about uh, meditation or they hear about meditation. 
it's a thick beauty is the term that he uses and i've and that that's kind of stuck with me this idea of thick beauty and i think that that at at its heart like the best parts of his movies have that thick beauty like that moment of in a Mulholland drive in the middle of the movie where the woman is singing uh the roy orbison song in spanish oh yeah yeah thick beauty mm-hmm. oh it's there are so many poignant moments in in lynch films i the the his ability to do that in such a sincere way is so is is, is difficult for me to watch sometimes i remember i mean because i i watched eraserhead probably long before I was ready to. Um, I, I saw it in my early teens, so I didn't get it at the time. Um, and I actually thought it wasn't it wasn't a very good movie when I first watched it, or watched it, um, and I only appreciated it later on. But then I think when I was 19, somewhere 18 or 19, I saw The Elephant Man, and that movie changed my life, um, changed the course of my creativity, changed my ability to tell a narrative story, changed my sensibilities as a person in so many ways. Um, and I think that the, 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 that is, that is a movie that from beginning to end smacked me in the face with that, 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 that thick beauty that you're describing. Um, and it hit me at, at, at a level that I didn't think any piece of art ever could. I think, uh, God, that movie is just so great. And I mean, if, if people haven't seen it, it's young Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I, I was thinking about that while we're, I was going through stuff for this episode. I'm like how in the hell did he get Anthony Hopkins? And I was like, oh, because he was like nobody then. Like he was yeah, just a yeah. Shakespearean actor. He hadn't been, you know, it wasn't until later in life that Hopkins like became Hannibal Lecter and then just his career took off. So just to think about this young David Lynch and this young Anthony Hopkins making this movie. And and I would say it's it's, I haven't seen the straight story, which is the Disney movie, so that might take the place later. But I would say... Of everything else, which is, what, 15 other movies, that is his most straightforward. Elephant Man is his most normal film, if you can use the word normal. I totally agree, I, and w- which is funny because um, I hold it side by side with Lost Highway, uh, which is in my, my top five for, for Lynch films, um, but they're so different. Um, I mean, let's not forget that John Hurt, one of the best actors in the history of Hollywood, um, was was um, Joseph Merrick, Merrick um, in The Elephant Man, um, changed from the original name of John Merrick. But still, I mean, it was the performances were unbelievable. The subtlety in that movie is 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 unique um, in the the Lynch um, collection in the sense that there's just a lot of weird silence in that movie and slow movements and and subtle I- I- emoting that made the movie so much more powerful. Uh, but it's such a departure from anything else. Like, I mean, if you go back to back, because the, if you looked at the two biggest movies of that era of, of Lynchian films, um, it's Eraserhead and then Elephant Man. And they're so different. <laughs> they're so different as movies. Yeah, the only thing that really connects them is the fact that they're both in black and white and that there's a freak in both of them. Yeah, which is which is even stranger because the 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 when looking back on the the creation of the Elephant Man, uh, Lynch actually shot that in color film and then processed it in black and white so Ooh, that I he would get richer tones out of it. Yeah, so the tones are 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 a weird density. Like there's there's a richness to the black and white, and the reason why that was was because it was shot on color film. So right. it's interesting. Interesting, interesting, and that's a common technique for photographers in general to shoot photos in color. And then turn them into black and white and post to maintain yep, those, that's true. that mm-hmm. depth. But of course, he was doing that 
30 years before any of us you know the of course these days in photoshop and 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 you know with our even with our phones these days it's easy to do but imagine the the nightmarish endeavor that is taking film stock and converting it from color to black and white i can't even imagine incredible and and think about the person that was uh funding that film going oh (laughs) but it was the right choice and uh, yeah that movie it was made in the early 80s i mean most people when they watch that movie think it was made much earlier than that but it was actually made in the early 80s um when films like that were unheard of you know you're 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 holding this next to 16 candles and the breakfast club and 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 you know movies like star wars even um it was such a different film it was so much more subtle and so much more slow um, and that's, that's, that takes a bravery that, that, you know, not just from Lynch's perspective, but from the people who funded that movie, from the people who, who let two Shakespearean actors in Anthony Hopkins and, um, um, John Hurt take such prominent roles in, in expensive movie. And of course, in, in examining that movie for what it is, you know, who better than Mel Brooks, um, to produce it. And he's the one that ended up producing it too, as well. So I think it's, that whole project is just fascinating from beginning to end. What a, what a, from an early stage, what a clear sense of vision. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's rare, but I think that it goes back to what we're saying here is that he's, he's willing to take the journey to him. Creativity is, is about the journey. And I guess you can't help, but be clear if you're ready to turn at any moment. And that goes back to what I was saying about follow the project. I think sometimes we all get caught up in this idea of fighting against something to make it what it was. Um, or make it what we thought it was going to be or what we want it to be. And, sure. and and we end up trying to do essentially what we describe as putting a square block in a, in a round hole. Um, it just doesn't work. Uh, for example, like going back into my novel for a second, I went through a huge thing on Monday. Uh, I was looking at it and I'm going, how am I going to make this work? How am I going to make this part is not working for me? Why isn't this working? And I had to do what Stephen King refers to as kill your darling. Yeah. And I, I killed a whole section of the book because I realized that it was extraneous, that I did not need it, and that I was working really hard to make it fit into the context of the book, and it was actually an obstacle. And if I don't think if, if I hadn't been studying Murakami uh, last month and studying Lynch this month, that, I've, that I maybe I might not have made that decision. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, how... How 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 difficult is it from your perspective as a writer to to invest so much time and energy into either a character or a setting and then have to off it? <laughs> it's frustrating. It really is. But I mean, it's you have to remind yourself, and it's it's impossible because you know that's why the phrase "kill your darlings" is so prevalent right now. I've heard it come up so many times recently. Um, because people are it's starting to sink in for people because there are things that you create that they are they're not your children because that doesn't cover it they're your darlings you know there's there's a preciousness to these creations and we work so hard to make them work but you have to realize that the bigger darling is the project itself is mm-hmm. the movie is the book and uh keeping this one little thing uh What's it going to do? Is it going to ruin the whole thing? Well, if it ruins the whole thing, then it ruins the darling itself too. So you have to make that sacrifice, and it's hard. It is a sacrifice, um, but you once you do it, and then things start moving forward, 
you know you made the right choice. And that's the beauty of creation. You can always reverse gears. You know, if you if I kill this section of the book and I move forward and I go, oh, crap, I need that. I still have it. I can still yeah. put it in. Uh, editing is the most underrated art of all time, both in video, in photography, in writing, in everything. Editing is everything. Sure. Uh, and I think that the Lynch is a great example of that, too. I mean, his editing... The, the way he what he does you know this idea where he talks about juxtaposing two images that's all done through the editing sometimes sometimes sure. the, spe- the the scenes that there's no connection between some scenes mm-hmm. he slams things up together for the juxtaposition oh god lost highway <laughs> that's, that's lost highway much... is, is the most jarring movie of all time i i absolutely love it um but lost highway i i remember seeing it with people who um weren't weren't really fans of lynch or not not really fans but just didn't really know of his work you know just kind of the the, the standard moviegoer and how jarring of an experience a movie like lost highway really is if you have no if you have no background on who lynch is or how he does the things that he does yeah it's it's, it's like he he went to the the extreme on editing and and scatter with lost highway and then he came in with Mulholland Drive and kept that same aesthetic, but then now he introduced this duality thing that just screws with your head for the whole movie. Yeah. And it, I don't know that... Uh, I wouldn't say that he screws with people, but he definitely plays against expectations. Um, he knows what people expect. And he... instead of So a lot of times you, you have this... There's a line in the middle, right? And that's the expectation. And people go to the right. They want to fulfill that expectation. Um, I think, as far as I know, Lynch is the only filmmaker who goes to the left. He goes yeah. as far, and he leads you further, so far away from your expectation that that becomes the whole experience. That the experience is about exploring something that is shouldn't have been possible, essentially. Let me ask you this, though. I mean, I, I feel like there's there's... Some of some of it's ground in a reality, though. I mean, Lost Highway obviously is just all over the map um, when it comes to its themes um, and its narrative storytelling. But if you look at a movie like Blue Velvet, for example, that one goes to the left, but it goes to the left in a very visceral way. Um, like that's a pretty brutal movie to watch, um, and the themes are pretty pretty ruthless as well. Um, so, I, I, what do you think about that as 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 a medium to reset the audience? For example, I th- I think part of the reason why Lynch does it is so that he can get the 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 audience back to a zero point on their expectations, and then he can build a story around that. Well, definitely, he's a master of of swiping them and then pulling them and prodding them and turning them. And it's because he's not actually trying to do it to them. He's trying to do it to himself. Sure. And and we have no choice but to go with him, right? <laughs> yeah. and it's like we're 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 we've been kidnapped, but you know we've been kidnapped as collateral. You know, it's like Daddy was the one that got kidnapped, and we just happened to go with him. You know, we're stuck in the situation because of what Daddy did. And yeah. That's essentially what Lynch is doing. He's just he's. He's finding out. He's he sees he knows how to pull that comfort in, so he doesn't lose the audience completely. I mean, there is a plot structure to everything, uh, although sometimes it is tenuous, um, and even he will admit that. But then he he sees a, a spot where there's no light shining, and he goes, "What's over there? Let's go over there." Sure. And, you know, uh, I don't know if you remember in Inland Empire, there's that rabbit thing. Mm-hmm. With the rabbits yeah. watching TV and like walking around the house, 
and it's oh it's, yeah it's, it's it's for people who haven't seen it it's essentially it's it's people in bunny suits um just acting like a like a 1950s family um there's no explanation to it there's no explanation to how it fits in the movie or anything like that but it's it's something that he brought in maybe just as one small idea and he just kept going well what if i make it a little bit longer if i make it a little bit longer and then i mean inland empire in my opinion uh is almost the opposite of Lost Highway. Lost Highway was scatter, jump, 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 jump. Inland Empire is like, how long can this scene go? Yeah, definitely true. How far can I push this scene? And I think that uh, he understands how to keep an audience, but he also understands how to sometimes betray the audience to their benefit. Sure. I feel like even in some of his more predictable work, like, I mean, the the two based on, well, no, most of his stuff is based on something, but I mean, the two that are based on books, um, like, I'm, I'm going to bring back one of my favorites into this discussion, which is Dune. Um, love the book, love the movie, two completely different pieces that have nothing to do with each other. Um, and I think in a lot of ways for me, um, it was... Dune as both the book and the movie kind of taught me to separate the two pieces and to view them as as brilliant pieces of work without comparing them to each other. And I think that that Lynch's Lynch's sensibilities in in the movie um, created a very different universe for me than the book did. So, yeah, definitely. I think he he has a way of pushing and pulling the story um, in the way that makes the most sense to him in the moment in which the story is being told. It's almost like he's making it up as he goes. Um, And there's definitely a very clear sense of that. But somehow he manages to weave it all together um, in such a way that the story then makes some kind of collective sense. And I think there's there's such a skill to that that's that's pretty fascinating. Dune's also a favorite of mine. Uh, I think technically, if I remember correctly, that's the first Lynch film I ever saw. Um, huh. But technically, neither of us saw that as a Lynch film because it was not released as a David Lynch film. David, True. He, Alan Smithied it. And for those who mm-hmm. don't know what that means, when a director makes a film... And uh, they're not happy with the final product. They will have their name removed. And the fictitious name Alan Smithy is added yes. to the credits. <laughs> David Lynch directed Dune. I don't know the whole story of why um, why he Alan Smithied it. I do know that there are like four or five different edits of that film that I've run across. And these aren't like minor differences. You know, like this is the shorter version. This is the extended version. Um one has a male narrator, another one has a female narrator. One has this scene and not this scene, but the other one has this scene and not this scene. There's no definitive version of that film. Sure. And, and I think what probably happened is he lost control of final edit and he he told them to shove it. Yeah, I think in 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 reading what I did about Dune because that that movie fascinated me. Yeah, I've I've seen so many different versions of it. And if you take the shortest version and the longest version, the stories are very different. Um and I remember reading somewhere that that Lynch as he was making it felt like he was making compromises for the studio along the way. Um and yeah, he definitely didn't have final cut, but the 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 compromises are ultimately what made him feel 
um, like he had lost control of the movie and it wasn't the studio's fault it was because he felt like he had a responsibility to the studio to make a certain kind of movie um, I think the final theatrical release was pr- close to his cut but I think that the version that they ultimately re- released on TV was almost an extra hour longer and contained footage that he had no desire to put in the final product so I think that's part of the reason why it became a, an Alan Smithy um, versus um, him having any attachment to it at all um, it, I think later on he said that there were parts of the movie he was definitely proud of but the final the final product was so askew from his original vision that he didn't want to have his name on it not that it was necessarily a bad film but that the story was very different from his original intention and i think that's probably why he stopped working with books right it's it's i mean when you're working with a book for subject matter you're kind of responsible to finish it at least kind of close to how the book ends true and for someone who does all the things that we're talking about that that follows the journey to have a definitive storyline laid out and to have to concede to that i mean like even elephant man had to be different uh, difficult for him because he had to conform to the man's actual life mm-hmm. uh, john merrick was a real person and the elephant man is a, is a beautiful book by christina sparks um and maybe that's the reason he changed his name to Joseph Merrick, because maybe mm-hmm. he changed some elements that he of the man's life. Um, I just I think that 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 would be difficult. I mean, when you really look at the succession of films, and I may be wrong in the order because I'm not going to look right now, but we go from Eraserhead, which is a pretty crazy film, to <laughs> <pretty> <laughs> Elephant Man, which is a pretty is his most restrained film as mm-hmm. far as craziness. Then to Dune, right? Yep, it's Dune right after that, yeah. And then Wild at Heart? Um, I'm not sure if Wild at Heart is first or Blue Velvet's first. Either but it's, way. But they're, but they're both around the same time, so it doesn't matter. Either way, I mean, it just if either one of those fits in, in the storyline, where it's like, I tried to make this movie Dune, and then, screw this, I can't do this storyline thing, Blue Velvet or Wild at Heart. You're going to drop in like this crazy film. That's the complete opposite. That goes back to the Eraserhead aesthetic. And Yeah, and, and let's not forget that very soon after that, um, he started working on the project that I, I would assume that most of the general public knows him for, which is Twin Peaks. Oh, yeah, which is coming back in 2017, by the way. Yeah, I can't wait for that. I'm really curious. I totally forgot about it until like a week ago, and I'm like, wait, shouldn't that be out already? And I had to look it up. And, of course, you know, there's, like, nothing. It's all hush-hush. It just says 2017. Even if that sucks, which I doubt it's going to, I'm in. It's just like the X-Files. When the X-Files came back, I don't care. I liked it. Yeah, it doesn't matter. (laughs) It came back against all expectations, something you love. And in the case of Twin Peaks, something you love that lived very briefly comes back. That's pretty incredible. And for Lynch to be willing to dive back into that, for those who aren't like huge Twin Peaks fans, um, it's not a weird thing that he's doing this. Actually, um, some people think that he always planned to bring Twin Peaks back because there are many times within the show Twin Peaks, which was only two seasons, technically like a season and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, many times in the show where they mention 25 years in the future, 2017 is 25 years in the future from when the show originally aired. Which that continuity alone is unbelievable. Ugh, the genius of that. 
I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I can't imagine the deal that he made with whoever he made in order to to ensure that it would be possible to make that 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 continuation twenty five years later. I'm sure, considering who Lynch is, that that was completely planned. It says it says a lot about who he is as a as a as a person, as a director, as a creator. That number one, all these actors are willing to come back, and even like even in his films, how many actors he brings back over and over again: Kyle McLaughlin, um, uh, Laura Dern. So many mm-hmm. actors that he's worked with over and over again. It says a lot about him. But to come back and be willing to do a show 25 years later, it's mm. incredible. And there's there's a part of me that before I realized the 25-year thing, before I went through and rewatched Twin Peaks um, last year and remembered the 25-year thing, at first I was a little bit bummed out that they were bringing it back because there was kind of a magic between the show and the movie Firewalk with uh, Firewalk with me and the Twin Peaks show. It created a circle, in the sense that uh, Firewalk with me was the beginning and the end. Mm-hmm. It introduced the beginning of the TV show, but it also ended the TV show. Which, if you guys haven't seen it, I sound like a lunatic right now. But we are talking about David Lynch, and it, it the show and the movie are a complete circle. What happens yeah. in the future? Uh, is events in the past it's it's hard to explain i don't i hope that it, this doesn't ruin that aesthetic though because <laughs> that's that's pretty incredible in and of itself that you can create something that's circular yeah especially in this day and age where most uh, storytelling is particularly linear um there's 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 a craft to to lynchian storytelling that is i think he's always kind of been that way i mean if you look at projects like lost highway or mulholland drive there's definitely i mean mulholland drive a little bit more loosely but there's definitely a circular feel to them in a weird kind of way you know yeah i think he just uh he loves repeating themes and uh like for example going into mulholland drive there's um he likes repeating things but repeating them in different circumstances to yeah. to see how they change even though it might be the same thing. Uh, for example, uh, Naomi Watts' character, who has a different name in each section, so don't ask me to remember. Um, <laughs> I think one of them is Betty. I can't remember. But anyways, in the first section of the film, she's practicing that scene. Uh, yeah. And then later, she does that same exact scene with Chad Everett, who, by the way, I'm named after. Um, yeah, nice. Uh, they do that and she does that scene and she does it differently because now she's actually performing the scene, but to take those same exact words and play them in a completely different context. Um, and not just in the fact that in one she's practicing and the other one, she's more performing, but in the first one, it's woman to woman in the second one, it's man to woman in the first one. It's violent. Yeah. It's it's until you realize that they're practicing lines, you think that she's going to kill Rita. I don't know why I remembered her name. Um, <laughs> and in the Cause second, because it stays constant. Sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, you're right. It does. And in the second one, it's it's super sexual. Um, yeah. So he takes he takes those those rep- repetitions, but then tweaks them. And I I just think that's more than anything. I think that's some of the most brilliant stuff he does right there. That's why that's my favorite Lynch film. 
and and it doesn't hurt that it's it's such a beautiful film it's there's it, it, everything about that movie is just pretty to me um and it doesn't hurt that Naomi Watts who I think is beautiful to begin with it was was just perfectly cast in that role I mean there's just a magic to that movie from beginning to end not just from a narrative standpoint but from an aesthetic standpoint that's just magical to me yeah everybody in there where you're like oh this guy is a douchebag yep that's that's what he's supposed to be like the instant yep. you see somebody Lynch is really good at casting in the sense that he he can cast people that don't typically look like the character mm-hmm. um and but he knows that they can be that character and so much so that the moment you see any Lynch character they're already defined the moment you see them like that facade already defines them yeah I mean even even his himself even casting himself in Twin Peaks as Gordy yeah yeah true I mean, (laughs) I forget that he did that (laughs) as the the completely deaf FBI director. (laughs) But he's I mean, he's perfect. The moment you see him and then you hear him talking, you're like, yep, that's what a guy like that would look like. Yeah. And to be able to cast yourself perfectly, uh, it's the opposite of what Tarantino does when he casts himself. He he casts himself in in the worst roles on purpose. Sure. Um, I don't I I think that. Lynch is, when we talked about this and we talked about the idea that we had both seen almost all the films and we, I, I didn't realize that, uh, I think that Lynch is, he's like this sneaky little ninja in my creative life. <laughs> <laughs> like I, he, he influenced, he's influencing me in ways when I don't even know it. I don't even know how important he is into my creativity because I, I, maybe he's wired his way into my subconscious as well. And he just doesn't live on my conscious level. Oh, I can see that. I mean, I definitely, I, I look at certain movies like um, um, I became a brooding, fear, death-fearing bastard for a while because of uh, because of Pullman's performance in Lost Highway. So I totally hear you. Do you remember the name of the actor that played Death? Speaking of casting, in uh, well, not Death. It's not officially confirmed that he's Death, but the 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 the, the pale-faced dude in uh, Lost Highway. Do you do you remember who that was? No, the guy that kind of looks like Klaus Nomi. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't remember his name. I got, I got to track that down You're at like, some point. Is he I... Asian? Is he not Asian? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, he's he's one of those actors. Like, um, oh god, what's that guy's name? There's a German actor, Udo Krier or something like that. Um, I can't remember. Anyways, he's he's one of those guys <laughs> that's just one of those strange-looking humans, and not as an insult to them as people, but they just stand out. Yeah, totally, totally. And uh, God, we that guy. I don't. I wonder if that guy's been in anything. What if he looks normal, nor normally, and we've seen him and stuff, and we just don't realize it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And and considering that it's Lynch, that's definitely possible. Considering his propensity towards casting people that make no sense outwardly to those roles, but make total sense when you see them. I think it, more so than than most artists. Um, I think there are a few artists that have this effect on me, but more so than most artists, um, Lynch has more of an effect on my 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 being as a person than he does um, as me as an artist. Um, I think his work definitely seeps into my subconscious much more strongly um, than other film directors um, that I really like. Because if you look at certain movies, uh, or I mean certain directors, like Fincher, for example, I love Fincher, but I don't leave a Fincher film feeling that my my brain has been altered somehow. Um, And I feel like every time I watch a Lynch movie, something about me has fundamentally changed. (laughs) Yeah, in some way, like Lynch reminds me of... uh... Wayne Coyne from Flaming Lips in the mm-hmm. sense that like, you listen to Flaming Lips and you think these guys are on some drugs and he is completely clean and sober and always has been. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the same with Lynch. Like you watch a Lynch movie and you're like, this guy is on some hardcore, difficult acid, probably some speed mixed in there. Nope. <laughs> he's, he's a meditating Buddha-like figure. <laughs> uh, who, who just happens to be completely unhinged with his imagination. There's there's something just really fascinating about that to me. And considering the, 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 the scope of his work too, I mean, we're not even talking about um, that the comic series that he did. You ever see that the comic series that he did? Angry uh, Dog. Yeah, the angriest dog in the world. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's so it's such a strange project, um, and it's it's it, it seems to me just like Lynch just does whatever he wants whenever his imagination pulls him towards it. So I think it's really fascinating. You know, he did that for nine years. No, I didn't know that. Holy daily, cow. daily Jeez. for nine years. Uh, so he's like he's like the Asimov of of crazy film, I guess. <laughs> I've, I've said this before. I think some of the most underrated creative people in the world are the people who do comic strips. Sure. Can you imagine waking up every day and having to draw something and be funny every day? No, I couldn't. I, I couldn't imagine. Who's the Who's the guy that did uh, Garfield? I forget his name. Jim Davis. Jim Davis. That's right. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't imagine. Or uh, Calvin and Hobbes, you know, the, any one of the ones that we, we, we know and love. I just can't imagine the amount of creativity that it takes to do that every single day. Charles Schultz, he did it for like Charles 60 Schultz. Yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Ugh, unbelievable. And, and that's, uh, I, I know what it's like to create daily. I did it with the vlog. But that's a level, I mean, on the vlog, all I was doing was thinking of ways to communicate what I was thinking and feeling. And that was hard. But to create something that isn't your life. That isn't filtering your life in the sense that I'm not sharing what I'm thinking and feeling to dig outside of yourself and to find something funny that other people are going to relate to. Incredible. Lynch did it for nine years. And he said that the reason he talks about it briefly in the book, um, the reason he stopped is um, so he had an editor at the I don't remember what magazine it was that started it. Um, That editor left. He worked with some other editors. That guy came back. And when the guy came back, he said, this has kind of run its course and Lynch being Lynch was like, cool. And just went with that. Okay. This is done. This phase is over. And he talks about like, even the, the impetus of that idea is like, he just drew this dog that looked really angry. And he, he thought, what if I do like four cells and the dog doesn't change, but three of them are the daytime third ones at night. So you can see a passage of time. And the only thing that changes in the comic is what's being said inside the house. And that would be what pisses the dog off. And so you just have to think of different things every day that's going to piss off this dog. God, for nine years. Incredible. Unbelievable. (laughs) That is insanity. Oh, my God. That's I mean, that's that's almost what? Three thousand comics. Something to that effect. Yeah, that's that's unbelievable. And, And in between all of that, he's making he's making Dune and Twin Peaks and everything else. That's shocking. Yeah, he's uh. You're right. He's up there with Asimov. I feel like uh, we might have to do Asimov next, just because yeah, we that, talked that's... about him so much. Oh man, I I almost don't want to do him next, just because of the amount of homework it's going to take to do Asimov. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. Screw it. Let's just do it. <laughs> well, I mean, we're we're once again we're not here to give an index of who the person is. It's just we're going to figure out about their creativity. Sure, sure, you sure. Know, and there's a lot of interviews of Asimov. Anyway, so I guess we're announcing right now the next episode will be Isaac Asimov. Can you can you imagine like when 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 Eraserhead came out? I mean, we, let me let me ask you before I even go into this. What did you think of Eraserhead when you first saw it? Uh, it's been a while, so I don't know. I don't really know what. I just remember. 
as with most Lynch film, I kind of remember being baffled. <laughs> sure. Um, I think that part of, I think I went into it expecting, knowing that it was before Elephant Man, I think I expected it to be less Lynch. I mean, uh, for that to be your first film and to be so close to your style. Yeah. Uh, so I think that I expected, I went in with it, expectations of more plot structure. Sure. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I think I spent most of the movie going, holy crap. <laughs> yeah, because the reason I ask is because when 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 it came out, it was, no one had any idea what to do with it. I remember... Um, you know, when we first started our, our dive into Lynch um, four weeks ago, one of the things that I, I, I remember reading was that they wouldn't even screen it at, at Cannes um, and they didn't allow it to be um, submitted into the New York Film Festival because it was so weird. <laughs> and the poor guy. And, and, oh. and, and so many people panned it, too. Like A lot of people absolutely hated it. But some 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 critics out there hailed it to be one of the most groundbreaking pieces of cinema in the history of cinema. So it was such such a weird you know, such a diamet diametrically opposing views of that film right when it came out, and I thought I thought that was really interesting. And what's brilliant about Lynch and actually Jack Nance, which is the actor, the main actor in there, is the dedication they had to that film. You know that it took three years to make that film. I thought it took five, actually. It might have taken five, including post and pre-production. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it took it, them three to film it. Yeah, three yeah, yeah. years to film it, and that's not because what they were doing is difficult; is because they kept running out of money. Uh, in the book, he goes into a little bit more depth, and you should just read the book, and I'm not going to recite the whole thing. But essentially, he says that there's a scene in the movie. He's basically thanking Jack Nance for sticking with him for three years, <laughs> which yeah. is incredible. He says, imagine holding that character in your head for three years. Jeez, but, yeah, uh, true. But there's a scene in the movie where Jack Nance walks up to a door. He doesn't say exactly which scene it is. He says, they didn't get him to walk through that door for a year and a half. Huh. So they lost funding literally in the middle of a scene. So Jack Nance had to remember that scene for a year and a half just to be able to finish it. Yeah, the, the stories of how that movie ended up getting made are, are pretty fascinating. I mean, originally, like I, I think his script was was 21 pages long in total for that whole <laughs> for that whole film. And I think he he his intention was to make it like a 40 or 50 minute short film and it ended up becoming a full length film. Um, and I, I remember reading at some point that he had to take on a paper route, um, yes. you know, distributing New York times to people in order to just fund the damn thing. So that's, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty hilarious to me that a guy like David Lynch, one of the cornerstones of modern American cinema had to take a paper route to film one of his, his groundbreaking movies. It's and pretty awesome. What's also hilarious about that is he was married at the time. So there's all these people pressuring him, you know, go get a normal job. Give up on this film. It's ridiculous. Give up on it. And instead of listening to them, not only does he not give up on the film, for some reason he goes and gets a paper route, which is what little kids do. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure. Uh, it's just very, it's like when he goes, he says that there's, that there's something about the film that felt unfinished to him. And I can't remember. I think this happened to him after the film was already over. But he said the film felt unfinished and he picked up his Bible, which is weird because he's not a religious man. He said he picked up his Bible and he said he flipped to a certain page and he read one passage, one line from one passage. And he said, ah, now the film is complete. 
<laughs> and he says he's never going to tell anybody what that line is. But he, the film was already done. He had to read something for the film to finish for him. Uh, because what a, it, what it a really weird is a journey. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm so curious as to what that passage is. I, gotta, I, I doubt he'll ever reveal that anywhere. But I'm just, I, just from a pure creative perspective, I'm very curious as to what that was and why it exists the way that it does. And if it was anybody else, you could probably watch the film and go, oh, okay, this is kind of the general theme. I think it's this line. It's David Lynch. It could be yeah. any line. In it there. could literally be anything. Yeah. yeah. It could be one of those, this guy begat this guy, begat this guy lines. Who knows? Uh, fascinating. I, I, I don't even I'm I, now I, I can't wait for, for the, um, because unlike most other directors who kind of dabble in, in other projects while they're doing their main ones, um, I know that Lynch has been neck deep in this Twin Peaks remake for a while. So I'm really curious as to where this one's going. Um, because, you know, mentioning the 25-year thing, like even thinking about Lynch in general, he's so uncompromising as an artist that I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how, how Lynchian this, this Twin Peaks is going to be. And I have my sneaking suspicions that it's actually going to be a strangely straightforward story. Um, and it's going to be, I guess what we want what we wanted the second season of true detective to be in in a weird kind of way well i know that um production shut down at least twice yeah um, during filming because he got in arguments with um i don't know if it was showtime or if it was um whoever was funding behind showtime but he, somebody was pissing him off so he just kept walking away he's like if it's not my way it's not going to be done and when you're david lynch Sure, you could say, yeah, he's reached the point where he can do that. But if you look at his whole career, he's always done that. Yeah, yeah, he's he's never not done that. Yeah, and that's that's that puts him up in the totem head of people that we should be looking at for our own creative lives. We should be looking at our own stuff and going, "This is what I want it to be." And the one time he did do that significantly was on Dune, um, which is one of the most successful sci-fi movies in the history of sci-fi and because it didn't feel like him despite its success he still won't put his name on it that's pretty awesome and i believe i might be incorrect but i believe when you alan smithy a project you forfeit payment as well you do you give it all up so he did at the time one of the largest budget films and did it for free because he wasn't happy with it and it wasn't even a bad film. I mean, I, I'm, I think it's I mean, great. Of course, I have no perspective on it from Lynch's perspective, so it might not be anything close to what he originally intended. But as as a moviegoer, I thought it was a great movie. And we we would be remiss not to mention uh, Jodorowsky's Dune right here. Sure, sure. Um, for those who don't know, Alejandro Jodorowsky is a Chilean art house filmmaker i don't know yeah. how, how you would describe his films um they're in the category of lynch in the sense that like they screw with your head seriously although his are more psychedelic yeah um originally alejandro jodorowsky was the first one who was going to make dune and yeah. he want he got this guy named mobius mobius is um he's done covers of books for all kinds of um science fiction and fantasy novels famous artists at the time this was in the 70s um and he goes he starts getting more and more money i mean this it, by all accounts this would have been the most expensive film ever made uh because he wanted to have orson wells as one character he wanted to have mick jagger as another character he wanted to have salvador dali as another character and salvador dali wanted some ungodly amount of money to do this movie 
Um, there is a great documentary. I'm not going to go too far into this, but great documentary called uh, Jodorowsky's Dune. You should watch that and then watch David Lynch's Dune. Because essentially what happened is uh, another person Jodorowsky found to help him design uh, like the sandworms for Dune and some of the costumes was H.R. Geiger, the artist H.R. Geiger. Huh, nice. So a lot of these people ended up getting used when Lynch made Dune. Uh, not the actors, obviously, but they got Sting instead of Mick Jagger. Like a lot of those, um, a lot of the carryovers made it into his film. He used Geiger's design still. Um, and then Geiger went on to do um, some, use some of those designs for Alien and things like that. But what's very interesting is, look at this, whoever had the rights to the this book. And they go, okay, we're going to let Alejandro Jodorowsky do this. We're, we're ready to have a crazy film. It got too crazy for them. So instead of going and get a normal director, they went and got the other guy who's just like Jodorowsky to do Dune. <laughs> and it didn't turn out the way they wanted again. <laughs> because why? You picked a guy just like him. That has yeah, that what'd same... What do you, what'd you expect it to do? How do you expect that to go? <laughs> oh, my God. Um, you, sh- you Honestly, though, you could, I don't know if you've seen it either, Lamb. But that no, I have. documentary yeah. is brilliant. Um, the amount of pre-production work that was put into that movie... That was mm-hmm. a movie that was never made is incredible. They, they made a book of because he illustrated every scene. He had every these guys draw an illustration of every scene, every costume, everything. It's like a 2000 page book. Jeez. Of prep for this movie. Um, and that's why a lot of it got used again. But what's very interesting about it is not only did it some of that stuff get used again when Lynch made Dune. It also got used in films for the next 15 or 20 years. Things from that book popped up in other things all over the place. Is that the is that the single piece of work that brought is I don't know if it's Geiger or Giger, but is that what brought him to the mainstream? Is that the 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 the, the, the collection of work that did it? I believe so. I can't remember to be honest, but I believe so. Because um, hmm. alien, I mean, Alien's the one that made him popular. Um, but Alien came after that, so fascinating. Yeah, what what a heck of a project that is. I mean, looking at it from from a historical perspective, yeah. I, I'm. Do you have any idea who the production house was that made it? I remember reading that at some point, but I don't I'm, know off the top of my head. I I think it might be Disney. Yeah, it was such a maligned project, much maligned project for for the decade long that it took to actually end up making it. Um, and I I. I I look at it in the, I know it's, it's kind of far stretched to compare Deadpool to, to Dune, but just the amount of time and, and care um, taken to do that movie properly is, is pretty fascinating. Um, and, you know, losing funding, gaining funding, finding directors, and then having people back out. Um, you know, it, it shows, at least on some level, how much, how much love some of these producers have for these projects and how much they're willing to put in time and money-wise in order to make sure that they happen. And all credit to David Lynch. I mean, anybody that's read Dune... At least half of that book is internal. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And it in his translation of how that internal monologue, which is not even a monologue, how those internal thoughts of the mm-hmm. characters work within the context of the film, it works actually better in the film than it does in the book. Yeah, I actually thought the 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 storytelling wise, the the movie was better in that sense. It was quicker and and it was easier to follow. 
Yeah, the 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 whole fear is the mind killer. Fear is the mind killer mm-hmm. thing. It works really well cinematically. Yeah. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, fear is the mind killer. You're so fond of that statement. <laughs> oh, t- told you, man. I saw that movie when I was like, let's see, it came out in '84, so I was how old was I? Six. I yeah, I, re- I saw it on TV. I remember that too. I, I, on a television, a, a zenith at my parents' house. A zenith. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we watched it on uh I saw it on one of those TVs that looked like a table. Remember they look like pieces of furniture? Oh yeah, the, yeah. The uh-huh. giant wood televisions. Sure. Now we sound I mean, ancient. Is there anything on the horizon other than Twin Peaks for Lynch? Mm, I don't know. Oh, Dino De Laurentiis was the production company. Ah, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I remember reading that at some point. Um David Lynch, let's see what he's up to this guy. Yes, I'm on the internet right now. Uh, no, Twin Peaks. He's been doing a lot of shorts recently, though. Yeah, well, I mean, he's always... I mean, if you... Anyone who hasn't, by the way, um, I know DVDs aren't a huge thing anymore, but if you can, buy every movie that that Lynch has ever made on DVD because the bonus features on most of them are just as entertaining as the movie in some cases. Um, The one for Lost Highway in particular is one that um, I will have kicking around in my DVD library for a really, really long time. Yeah, I wish they would bring stuff like that to Netflix. Yeah, that's true. Like the the short films of David Lynch. Heck, you could dedicate an entire channel to that considering how much of it there is. And just the director's commentary on things. It would be so nice to hear those things. I, I That's one thing that I loved about DVDs. I'm one of the guys that would listen to director commentary. Um, I, I have a feeling for Lynch, though, uh, for some of his commentary, he's going to be like, okay, so for this particular short film, I'm just going to play a piccolo along with the movie um, and emphasize the parts that I feel make the most sense. Even better. Even better. Uh, <laughs> you know, I just discovered the other day uh, Simpsons World on FX, the FX Apple TV app or whatever. It has uh-huh. every episode of The Simpsons. Not only that, though, it has commentary for every episode of The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. So I've been watching every episode of Simpsons twice. I've been watching it once and then watching it with Matt Groening and um, whoever happens to be talking on the episode with him. And wow. I swear to God, like if you want to learn how to, I mean, these podcasts, creativity podcasts, where people are looking for creativity websites and all the time. This is bad for me to say. You don't need us. Just buy DVDs with director's commentaries. That's you're going to learn so much about creativity in general just listening to every one of those it's a different journey for every director but there's so many lessons in there and 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 it's just hidden in banter uh yeah like at, one of my favorite director commentaries of all time was for the cell um there's it's just it's hilarious there's parts like there's a there's a scene in the movie where this girl's floating in a tank of water and the director who's an indian um an Indian man, he says something along the lines of, this girl, she was awful. He's got this beautiful this beautiful accent, which makes it like 50 <laughs> times funnier. But he's like, this girl, she was just awful. Awful. <laughs> I, wish we, I wish we had used the other girl for this scene. Because this girl, I couldn't even get the camera close to her. Because <laughs> apparently oh, <laughs> she was such a bad actress, he couldn't, he couldn't put, shoot the camera in close to her. Because then you'd see how bad she was acting. Wow. And it's it's hilarious, but then it, it, it takes you on these journeys of creation, of seeing, you know, like, we, we see the final products, but to see the journey that an artist goes on, and I, I feel like film is the most difficult medium, 
because film requires cooperation. Sure. It requires more people than you can imagine and organizing teams and having a guy to organize that team. It's, it's a corporate structure every time you make a film. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you, you can make a, a film by yourself. Sure. But you can't make the Avengers by yourself. Oh man, think about some of the projects that we've worked on with our friends, no less. I mean, some of those projects are, are pretty far-reaching in scope, and just the amount of logistical nightmare that's required just to get 20 people in the same place at the same time is pretty remarkable. Right, like the, the Kung Fu Vampire video we did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I was just thinking that one, too. Just thinking about how difficult it was just to figure out how to get you know, three different vehicles worth of people from one location to the next because we had to shoot that in such a short period of time. Or when we were trying to get the smoke up behind Shannon and Nick and Matt and I were laying on the ground where you couldn't see us trying to fan the the smoke machine up. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Or, having, or having you crawl out of the floor. Remember that, oh, that escapade? <laughs> that would destroy my back. And, but, you know, it was all worth it. It, was a, it ended up being a great video. And it was so great that Korn ripped it off on their most recent video. Yeah, so thanks, Korn, for taking a great musical music video idea and uh, pretty much shooting it shot for shot. It's pretty yeah, awesome. You guys are original. By the way, yes, Korn is still a band, apparently. <laughs> you know, it, it, it does bring me back to as much as, you know, because, it, you know, obviously among our group of friends, there was a big um, hubbub about, you know, Korn, Korn doing that. But there's there's a certain sense that I have of just like, you know, who cares? Um because I, 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 especially nowadays, um, with the things that I've, I've had to go through in the last couple of years, I'm just trying to stay as far away from negativity as I can. So as, as annoyed as I, I was at, at that whole situation, um, you know, I, I still think at least on some level, I, you know, I'm happy that we got to it first and I'm happy that our version looked the way that it did. Because actually to me, without being, you know, inherently biased, I still think our version was better. I agree. I believe that ours had more of a storyline, but I think, yeah. um, and there's nothing, let me make something clear too. Um, this goes directly back to Austin Cleon. Uh, yeah. Artists steal. That's what you do. You steal ideas because you're going to change it. And inherently their video is, you still there? Yeah. Whoa. That was weird. Uh, Skype is making strange noises. I also decided we're not going to edit these videos. I mean, these uh, podcasts anymore. <laughs> so you're going to hear all the boo-boos from now on. Um, what was I saying? Uh, oh, I felt like, uh, yeah, you steal it. That's what you do because what, when you take that, it's going to be inherently different. Uh, their video is very different. There are certain shots that are obviously completely influenced. The shots where I was doing, um, what you know, using my hands to manipulate the old-fashioned camera. That's almost exactly in their version. Yeah. But the, mm-hmm. where they take the storyline is a different way. But the one thing that I think that is very important to remember that Austin Cleon makes a point in both of his books to say is, yes, steal, but always give credit to who you stole from. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I got this idea from this person, but this is what I did with it. And that's just good taste. Sure. And sure. I, and I, I feel like, it, yeah, if somebody had a great idea and I thought I could spin that my way, I would do it. But then at the end, in the credits, I'd be, I would credit that person, be like, go check out this movie that I ripped off. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, and there are certain directors who I, I don't even like that. Well, I, I like Tarantino, don't get me wrong, but I have a love-hate relationship with that guy. But he's very good about giving credit to you know his influence and, and, and stuff like that. So I, I very much appreciate it when artists do that. Yes, Kurt Cobain used to do the same thing. 
I mm-hmm. mean, if you go back and look at old Kurt Cobain interviews, you can you can rip into Kurt Cobain and say he sounds like the Melvins, he sounds like uh, Flipper, he sounds like all these things. But if you go back and listen to his interviews, he mentions those bands over and over and over again. And almost every one of those bands sold millions of albums because he mentioned them. Yeah, true. Um, so he he paid his dues as well, and I think that that's that's why it's important to do that because, uh, like you said, to focus on the positivity is is we're all here to support each other to make the world a better place by bringing things into it by creating things. So if you use something from somebody else, it's not just about mentioning that they did it because they deserve it. It's also because you're hoping that people will go check out their thing. You're spreading yeah, the love. And it brings back to, to me one of the most important quotes that I think Lynch ever had. And it's the one that, that I've been holding on to for the last couple of years, which is negativity is the enemy of creativity. 